Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. The radio and TV version of the show air in over 12 states. This includes both coasts and Silicon Valley. The show also airs in the UK, Caribbean, and Australia. For full show times, plus past episodes of the TV and radio show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. We just launched a free online community to connect past guests, listeners, and others. This community will allow you to network, chat on Slack, or get help with anything else, and a lot more. If you're interested in joining the community, buying some merch, sponsoring the show, or signing up for the newsletter, please go to buildingthefutureshow.com. The show is a proud media partner for the 11th Annual Media Excellence Awards, which are produced by Access Entertainment in Los Angeles, California. The Media Excellence Awards are recognized as the most influential awards show, honoring innovation and leadership in all things mobile entertainment, lifestyle, and technology. For more information on how to submit to these awards, please visit MediaXAwards.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Amy Nelson. She's the CEO at Venture for America. Amy, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I I think what you guys are doing is actually really innovative and super important. But maybe before we kind of get into all that fun stuff, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. So I grew up uh, mostly in a small town called Troy, Illinois, which is just outside of St. Louis, Missouri. Okay, very cool. So you went to kind of university. What did you take there and and why? Um, So I actually was the first person in my family to go to college. Oh, wow. And I decided that I wanted to move to California. Okay. I really liked No Doubt and Sublime and sure, all of those. Sure, sure. I grew up listening to them as well. <laughs> <laughs> Punk-ish, yeah, you know, yeah. bands. And so I decided to move to Southern California. Sure. I went to Claremont McKenna. Okay. And I studied philosophy. Oh, interesting. is certainly not uh, the best way to get on a startup path um, <laughs> or something that your parents are excited about when you're their first child to go to college, but um, it was a great major. I also studied government while I was there. Interesting. Um, What what got you passionate about kind of philosophy and and studying uh, government? So I thought I wanted to be a lawyer at the time. I was on the debate team and I spent all of my weekends, you know, like prep preparing for different debate competitions and philosophy was really a discipline that taught you how to think, how to structure an argument, how to sort of like take apart a case and and build something up and and create logical structures. And so that was how I think my passion started. But I had my freshman year philosophy professor stopped me the day after the senior exam and was like, or the final exam and said, Think you're pretty good at this would you consider majoring in it and uh, that's all it took <laughs> interesting okay so walk me through you you get out of school walk me through mm-hmm. your your kind of journey up until you decided to go back to school yeah so well my immediate next step i was six months pregnant okay. when i graduated from college and so i'd had a an offer to do a Fulbright research year abroad in Cameroon, which is where I had spent um, a semester and done my senior thesis research, but instead I had a baby. Sure. So I temporarily moved in with my mother and was applying to graduate schools. Okay. And then actually was accepted to graduate school, but decided to move back to California um, after some time and went to work for an organization called Relief International. Okay. And I was really oriented toward international development at that point, having spent a lot of time abroad and really getting excited about economic development, particularly in Central Africa. So I went to work for, uh, for Relief International, and then I ended up spending six years altogether in the international development space. Okay. And I was, in the end, um, I was running the U.S. office of an organization called Cambodian Children's Fund. Oh, very cool. And we ran educational centers for children who'd been garbage pickers at the Stung Min Che garbage dump. So it was wow. obviously really compelling work, really sure. heavy. Um, you know, the organization had expanded significantly. I think when I started there, the budget was less than a million. And, you know, by the time I left, it was close to five or six. Wow, that's huge. And it, it was significant. And, you know, we, we'd done a lot of fundraising, but I'd started to feel the limits of 
that model and felt like, you know, we were doing great work, but if our organization went away, these kids would go back to picking garbage sure. and that we hadn't created any real underlying change. And I was on a hamster wheel asking the same set of donors every year for money. Um, and I, I sort of was reading a lot about the impact investing space and seeing the emergence of the middle class in China and really thinking that capitalism was the best way to create change in society. Interesting. So because I'd majored in philosophy, I didn't know anything about capitalism um, or about business. And I decided to go to business school. So I packed up my then two kids and moved from Los Angeles to New York to Brooklyn um, and started at New York University, NYU's Stern School of Business and spent two years uh, getting an MBA. So did you do that full time? I was full time. Yeah. Okay. So the and while I was there, I ended up interning at B Lab. Okay. They're the B Corporation people. And I helped them create and launch a platform for investors to understand the social and environmental return of their portfolio. Interesting. So I spent that the summer. And then my second year, I was there, you know, 15 to 20 hours a week. So kept up that relationship, really enjoyed that work. Um, and then needed to get a, a big girl job after graduating. <laughs> okay, so you graduate. Um, walk me through your journey, you know, through Venture for America because you didn't start out as CEO, correct? No, I didn't. So the way I found Venture for America was uh, there was this front page New York Times Sunday business section article that was actually the most shared article on the New York Times that week. Wow. And it had been posted to you know my Facebook account. And I'd actually at first said I didn't want to read another millennial trend piece. So I'd avoided <laughs> reading it. <laughs> and then someone from my undergrad posted it because there was a student from Claremont McKenna who had been in the first year program. And so okay. I read the article. And I was like, oh my God, I, I get it. Like I'm from St. Louis. I under, I'm the poster child for brain drain. When I was growing up there, you know, there weren't the opportunities that I would have wanted. I mean, again, I was pregnant coming out of college. If I'd been able to find the opportunity that was appropriate for me, you know, being close to home actually would have been great. Sure. But there, that didn't really exist. And so how did you incentivize highly motivated people to move to these cities and build something great. Sure. So I, I got it. I was motivated. Um, I reached out cold on the, you know, on the internet wow. to the founder, Andrew Yang. And at that point, I think there were eight or nine people in the organization. They needed someone to do fundraising. They'd never had a professional fundraising person before. So I came on, it was uh, September of 2013. Okay. And our budget was about 1.8 million that year. Our budget's closer to 7 million this year. So wow. we've definitely that's huge. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's significant. We so I came on as the VP of external relations doing fundraising and then 2 years into that role I was moved into the managing director role which was really the number 2 um, and took on a significant piece of the internal operations at that point all the teams were reporting into me and then I reported into the founder who was spending a lot of time doing sort of the externally facing work. So that was, I guess, March of 2016. Okay. And then the following January, Andrew decided that he was going to leave the organization later that year. He let the board know. He let me know. And he put me forward as his successor. And the board agreed one uh, snowy March evening. <laughs> <laughs> it was no, the, the meeting. It was supposed to happen in person, but then there was this huge snowstorm. Ah, uh, okay a video meeting, which we'd never done before. And it was kind of funny because I had to keep leaving the meeting, right? Because they were talking about me, but I was oh, also sure. the person posting the video. That's hilarious. <laughs> Did you listen uh, to any of it? <laughs> no, 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 definitely not. Um, sure. And my husband and kids were there because they'd had a snow day and they were really confused. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the board agreed with his, with his position and, and they voted me on as the incoming CEO. Well, and congrats, that's great. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's been a, a bit of a whirlwind. So we had five months between that announcement and Andrew finally leaving to transition, to hire a COO, um, to build out our strategic plan. But it was a really nice sort of clear cut transition process where it wasn't overnight. But at the same time, we had a tremendous amount of continuity. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So for people that haven't heard of Venture for America, 
what exactly do you guys kind of do? Yeah, so we exist because America needs more entrepreneurs. And right now, we believe that there are too many barriers to entrepreneurship and too few incentives. But that anyone who wants to become an entrepreneur should have that opportunity. So what we do is we recruit recent college graduates who are highly motivated um, and very entrepreneurial. And then we put them to work as apprentices, sort of, at existing startups and growth companies in cities like Detroit, New Orleans, Baltimore, my hometown of St. Louis, one of 15 cities across the country that is both struggling to attract and retain the talent that they need and create jobs, but also has a burgeoning entrepreneurial ecosystem where there are sort of this critical mass of startups who can hire fellows. There are supportive institutions, investment dollars, et cetera, that are starting to bubble up. So we can kind of throw fuel to that fire by injecting talent into these ecosystems that are really hungry for top-notch people. Interesting. Okay. So you mentioned the term fellow. What exactly is that? Yeah. So our fellows are recent college graduates, as I mentioned. The way it kind of works is we go across the country the way that any recruitment operation would. We do, you know, info sessions and job fairs and a lot of word of mouth recruiting. So folks will apply to our program in their senior year of college, typically, although we will accept them a year or two out. This year, we had uh, just over 2,400 applications. Our class of of 2018, yeah, it was was a pretty huge spike. And we'll have about 180 fellows. So it's quite selective, as you can imagine. And then once you're accepted to be a VFA fellow, the idea is, you know, you're young, you're hungry, you're ambitious. You're gritty, you're resilient, um, but you're unformed. And so we spend time forming you through our training program, through the two-year commitment to working for a company. And then at the end of that experience, many of our fellows go on to become managers and leaders at the companies where we place them. But about a quarter have decided to launch their own businesses. Interesting. Um, sometimes as a side project that they're hoping to transition to full-time, but in many cases, they are full-time. And so then we have a suite of resources like a pre-accelerator program and a seed fund to help them get on their way to building a business. Interesting. Okay. So I want to cover that side in a second, but you mentioned you get them to work at a company Mm -hmm. and then for two years, but what types of support do you provide them during that two years? It's a variety of things. So at the beginning, we have a month long training program where we bring everyone from the Flatiron School to teach coding, IDEO to te- teach product design, McKinsey to teach operations and decision making, um, and Bionic this year is going to be doing lean startup training. So we bring in experts, and then every week the fellows have a new challenge that they have to solve as a team. So it's really geared at getting them out of an academic mindset and into this action-oriented, uh, you know, high-paced or fast-paced workplace type problem solving environment. And so that's the training program. And then they go off and work. And then while they're in their cities, we have local community directors in most of our markets who help create events for them. So once a month, we'll do sort of a chat with an entrepreneur or a training on, you know, how to incorporate your business, whatever, you know, depends on the city and the the week, the month, what we're doing, but there's ongoing programming. We also help connect them to mentors then we get them all back together one year in. Uh, they go back to training camp for a couple of days and do some follow-on training. But it's a really close relationship that we have with our community because what we're really trying to do is to build almost like the Navy SEALs of entrepreneurship, right? And so they're really connected to one another. They're, they live together. They're roommates. They date each other. Um, they found businesses together. And you know, the VFA identity becomes really core to who they are because they're in this sort of crucible together of that period after college where, you know, you've been following a syllabus your entire life so far and for the first time there isn't one. And as a result, they get really, really close to one another because they have to deal with some big existential questions about who they are and and what they want to be. And so creating that community um, and really instilling a sense of ownership and belonging is critical to who we are. No, interesting. That That's really cool. So once they're done the two years, they can obviously keep working that, that company and, and probably some yep. of them do. But 
how much involvement do they have with you guys? Is like, is it just kind of on the event side? They're still part of the community or how does that kind of work? Yeah, we sort of say, you know, BFA for life. Okay. And so you're still getting all the emails. You're still getting invited to all the events. We do a big alumni reunion every summer, um, which is fun. Last year, fully 50% of our alumni came out to Iroquois Springs wow. in, you know, rural New York to a camp. Um, and it was a blast. And I think it'll be just as many this, this coming summer. Um, and then we have an alumni board that's competitive. So, and they help advise us on running our programs. When we put together our strategic plan, you know, more than two thirds of our alumni participated in, you know, some of the surveys that we did. So it's, it's really quite a well-connected and committed network. Sure. And that's critical to, to our success. So we are, and then if you're starting a business, we will continue to support you. So for example, every year we do a crowdfunding campaign okay. uh, where we put all of our fellows projects into one sort of umbrella and we do promotion and they do promotion. It's competitive. So if you're in the top, you know, two or three spots, we give you extra money. And, you know, one of the teams, there were two teams that tied this year. One of them was a fellow from our very first class in 2012. And the other one were a group of fellows from a, a more recent class of, of 2015. So we don't, we don't really differentiate fully between fellows and alums, but there are certain benefits that are only part of the current fellowship. No, I, I, I think that's, that's great. I, I love kind of what you guys are doing in this space. I, I think obviously you guys supporting people that go off and start their own business is, is super important. But what I think makes you guys really, really unique is the fact that you guys help people kind of that actually go work for companies, right? Because I think the two things that are interesting to me about that anyway is there's a lot more companies that want that more kind of like startup feel, maybe not for the entire company, but for maybe certain departments or maybe they want to maybe eventually move it to their whole company, but large organizations just can't say, we're going to roll out this whole thing to everybody that's been here for decades. Right. Or where, yeah. where if you kind of incubate these ideas in kind of their department is actually really quite fascinating for me. And, and I don't know of another organization kind of globally that's even doing what you guys are doing in, in just on that side of the thing. Well, thank you. So most of the companies that we work with are startups themselves. Sure. So most of the median company has between 10 to 30 employees and they've raised maybe one to 5 million okay. in venture capital. And, and in many cases, our fellows are like the first paid employee that the company's ever hired. Okay. Um, so for the most part, we're working with startups okay. and in order to become one of our partner companies, you do have to have a growth posture at a okay. minimum, but we have worked with a handful of larger companies, innovation teams as sure. part of, sort of larger partnerships with them. So we have a couple of fellows working at Ford. We have several working at Quicken Loans, um, some who are working at Boeing's Horizon X program, uh, several at Alabama Power, which has been a big supporter of ours. Those are really strategic relationships where we feel like the fellow is going to get an extraordinary experience and that the company is providing, you know, a meaningful relationship to Venture for America. But for the most part, we really are focused on startups and, and high growth young companies. Sure. No, that makes sense. So I'm curious, though, you've had some pretty big successful um I, I guess, kind of like fellows and companies that have kind of come out of your program. Do you maybe want to kind of talk about a few of those? Sure. So one of the ones that we talk about a lot, so I'll give some other people sure. attention as well, is Bonza. Okay. They are a chickpea pasta company. Okay, interesting. It's high protein, low glycemic pasta made from chickpeas. It's delicious. My kids like it. Um, and <laughs> that that is key, that. right? <laughs> Uh, I think their demo really is mostly moms. Um, <laughs> it's it's in, I want to say, more than 15,000 stores wow. in North America That's now. Huge. They went through the Chobani incubator, and they've raised north of $7 million in venture capital. So they're they're off to the races. We've had fellows go through Y Combinator. Uh, we have a couple who've gone through or are currently in Techstars. So one company that I'm excited about, they just closed their seed round uh, um, of just over a million dollars. It's a million and a half, actually. Actually, they went through Techstars New York and it's called Path Spot. Okay. And I hope no one's eating when they're listening to this, but it is a device that scans the hands 
of restaurant workers to see if there's bacteria on them to limit the spread of foodborne illness. And so, you know, the, the restaurant worker puts the, pops their hand under the device, does a quick scan and it tells them if they need to rewash or if they're good to go and they can start handling food because apparently 40% of foodborne illness comes from unclean hands in restaurants, which is kind of gross. So So they were inspired by that, you know, Chipotle outbreak. Sure. And it's a huge problem for restaurants because it can just, you know, decimate their business if they have one of these uh, cases. So they're, they're exciting. They're up and coming. We also have Another company I'm super excited about is called uh, Natural Club. Okay. And it's a subscription hair care product for women of color who have natural hair. And it's all fresh fruit products. And, you know, bloggers and YouTube video folks are, like, obsessive about the product. They're doing incredibly well, well on the sales side. And were named one of sort of Forbes 30 Under 30 uh, last year, I guess. Wow, that's huge. So, yeah, and it's a really cool product. It's you know a demographic where the woman who's running it, Mucha Altajani, was herself a natural hair you know YouTube blogger, and she was making these products. And people were like, "That's great that you taught me how to make it. I don't have time. Can you just make it for me?" And so she had to figure out how to make it shelf stable and wow. how to distribute it. And there's a there's a huge demand for the product. So really proud of them. And I could go on forever. We have well over forty companies. Um, I think it's getting close to 60 if you count people wow. who are part-time on their companies. So it's it's exciting as we grow to watch these numbers continue to expand. No, that, that's really great. And something you touched on that I, I kind of want to reiterate is you, just the company you just mentioned where she started creating content. Okay, it was video content, sure. But it doesn't necessarily mean you can't blog about something or or you know just create a podcast or something around something that she knew and she probably it sounds like never thought about turning it into a business and and now it is and I I think the point I'm trying to get across is um, people should just create content right if if they Mm -hmm. because you never know where it's going to lead you or take you you might not lead you into you know a startup idea um, but you never know what job you're going to end up getting or who you're going to meet or, or where it's going to take you. And I think just kind of reiterating the fact that, you know, she created this content and then eventually it led to a business, I, I think is really kind of inspiring for the listener. And, and maybe they'll think about actually creating their own content in a space that they know about. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when you're truly interested in something and you want to go deep in a particular subject area, you'll, you'll ultimately find the white space, right? You know, I always get inspired. Like there's a couple of fellows right now who are just obsessed with bees and they're, they're beekeepers, but also they're starting a business that helps small time beekeepers okay. lend their hives to small farmers who need pollination services. And oh, I wow. didn't even know there was a market. Yeah, yeah I would have no either. And there is one, um, and it, there's a you know handful of big players or whatever that dominate. But there's all of these small shops that are springing up, especially with you know everything that's been going on with the bee crisis. Sure. And they love bees; they're big conservationists. But they found an opportunity to create a marketplace, you know, and and make some money off of what was truly a passion. And when I think about our fellows who have been more successful, it's ones who are obsessive about the product and the subject matter, as opposed to people who just really want to start a business and they'll do whatever the first thing is that comes to mind. Um, it's, it's the ones who go deep on something and, and, and typically it starts with content or at least a lot of reading, right? Um, and doing. Sure. No, I, I, I think that's, that's really great. Um, I, and I, I, I love that, right? Because again, to your point, like you basically turn a passion into a company that helps other people. I, I think that's great. Well, in this case, I guess it's bees and other people, but um, I, I think that's really great. Um, the, the other thing that I found really quite fascinating about what you guys do is kind of, you have a bunch of really interesting kind of our impact. It's kind of under your about us section. Um, the demographic stuff to me was quite outstanding. As a white male, I think I can kind of say that like 
the fact that you have kind of 39%, you say fellows of color and then 47% kind of women and, and then 52% men, the, the fact that you have almost half, you know, non-white males is quite impressive to me because it, that's yeah. a huge problem in the startup space. And, you know, just the fact that somebody like, you know, Venture for America is actually changing that is, is really quite great. Thank you. So fun fact, we have not announced this yet. Okay. But our, our incoming class is actually 52% women. So wow, that's really great. Time in our history that we will be majority women, which wow. I'm personally pretty excited about. Sure. Um, you know, I totally agree. And I think that Venture for America is perhaps uniquely situated okay. to change the face of entrepreneurship in the future. There's been a lot of research done about, you know, the leaky pipeline and why women and people of color aren't advancing in technology and entrepreneurship. And, you know, there are many, many places. You know, there's a great report by the K4 Center for Social Impact on why this happens. But you have these different sort of periods in one's life where they fall out of the pipeline. So okay. between college and starting in a job is one of the first places where people who are prepared for those jobs don't get them. They fall out of the pipeline. And then from having a career to advancing in that career and getting promotions, people fall out. And then from being in a position to be an expert in your field to actually creating a job, people or creating a company, people fall out. And so we actually undergird all of those places in the pipeline and we take you through from graduation to helping you get a job, to helping train you, build your skills. And then when you're ready to start a company, we will help you get there. Because there are many, many things that exist once you've already decided to start a company, once you already have some traction. But if people aren't getting there to begin with, we're never going to change what entrepreneurship looks like. And so I don't know anyone else who's in the business of going out into the field, you know, finding young people and saying, we know what it takes for someone to be successful as an entrepreneur. You need to have adaptive excellence. You can go into any situation get up a learning curve and adapt. You need to be comfortable with ambiguity. You need to be high integrity and optimistic. You need to be gritty and resilient. You know, you need these qualities. You need self-awareness, which is something that young people typically don't succeed at. Sure. Um, but we know that those are the attributes and those things have nothing to do with where you went to school, what your parents did, or where you come from. And we can test for those things in a way that, positively identifies folks regardless of their background and bring them in even if they didn't have the opportunity to start something when they were young. It's not just people who went to certain schools or who had the capital when they were in high school to start a company on the side. It's really about those dispositional qualities and then putting people in a position to uh, build those skills over time and to get exposure to strong leadership. And that's important for us when we're finding our partners. So for me, it's a matter of one, social justice, because we're in a position to do something really meaningful for our society and we're, we should do it um, because we have the credibility that and the experience that other organizations might not have or, or they just don't exist. But also it's better for business. Mm -hmm. Like our, the problems that we are facing as a society and the business opportunities that gonna, are going to go along with that are not are not you know unidimensional there are many many market opportunities that are going to come up and if we don't have a diverse set of entrepreneurs we're going to miss out as a society so i strongly believe that we are you know betting on winners because of just solid business undergirding no i i 100 agree and i i think that interesting that's always been kind of fascinating to me is when you limit kind of certain either by gender or race or, or part of the world, it, it just seems like absurd to me that we, we've kind of done that as, as a society, right? And kind of shut people out when with the internet, at least nowadays, it, it almost levels the playing field. I, I get that still some people have more an advantage of others just based on a handful of things. We don't need to talk about that. But I, I think the fact that like, you know, you there's companies like what you guys are doing and, and others that are allowing people and, and teaching people that to your point, like it doesn't really matter if your parents were wealthy or poor or anywhere in between, right? That yes, it might be harder for you if you don't come from maybe money or something, but 
there's a lot of resources that are free or, or cheap or inexpensive, or, or maybe you can't afford to pay for some of them, but you, you can do it, right? And I think that's what I really love about what you guys are kind of doing. Thank you. And I think the role models and the network is really, really critical. Um, And those are things that we're able to provide. Well, and you're able to provide those in kind of cities where they're not necessarily known to be like huge startup hubs, like obviously Silicon Valley, everybody thinks they need to be in the Valley. You really don't need to be in the Valley. In, In some cases, I think it's actually more of a hindrance to be in the Valley um, or one of the big other kind of startup hubs across the state sometimes, right? Not all the time, but I, I think just kind of setting that straight, um, I think will at least Absolutely. gets people think thinking about it, right? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, depending on what industry you're in, there are really strong arguments to be somewhere else. So regardless of what industry you're in, paying rent in Silicon Valley is not awesome. <laughs> sure. For anyone. Uh, for anyone. <laughs> And certainly there's great talent out there and I would never want to, to undermine that, but it, there's a point at which it becomes sort of capital inefficient to start a company in Silicon Valley. But if you are in cybersecurity, mm-hmm. there's awesome things going on in Baltimore. If you are in mobility, Detroit is a great place to be. If you're in ed tech, New Orleans makes a ton of sense. Sure. If you're in healthcare, like Cleveland or even Birmingham, Alabama have amazing hubs going on there based on their historical strengths, right? Sure. And so and I know people who are in insurance tech, like who are in Columbus, Ohio, that makes a ton of sense. FinTech in Charlotte, North Carolina, like where are these industries strong? It just makes sense. You know, CPG coming out of Cincinnati, definitely happening. So we think that, you know, there, there are better and worse companies to, to create in certain parts of the country, right? Mm-hmm. But that there's opportunity, there's, you know, everywhere. And, and we need to make opportunity more ubiquitous. No, I, I 100% agree with you. I, I, I wanted to kind of get you talking about that because I, I think it's super important, right? Like a lot of people, myself included, until I really started doing the show, like I've been in tech over 20 years, just so you have some context. And I I had no idea about how great some of the innovation was happening in a lot of cities across the states. Like, uh, and I'll give you a perfect example. Like we were in, I was in North Carolina for for kind of my day job a couple of weeks ago. I had no idea how big of a tech hub like North Carolina is, right? And and like, yeah, for certain industries, you you would definitely move there over Silicon Valley or New York or LA or pick another big startup hub, right? Like, so it, it's quite, you know, I think just getting people to think about that and maybe even look into their own community about how big a certain industry is or isn't. I, I think that's really great. So I, I want to kind of, talk about a couple other things that you guys do. You guys have this build something toolkit. What exactly mm-hmm. is it and and why do you think, or why did you guys kind of create it? Yeah, so the build something toolkit is just a set of downloadable resources for people who want to start businesses to take you through that very early stage, which is kind of our sweet spot of ideation and thinking through a business. And we put that together because we were getting a lot of requests for information from people and we decided that we knew a lot and we could curate it and put it together um, in a digestible format. Mm-hmm. We have, um, we actually have a downloadable book coming out pretty soon. That will be some, some gated content, but I, I just took a look at it on Friday and it looks awesome. So I'm super excited. <laughs> That's it's great. Kind of the next iteration of the build something toolkit. And then we also have a medium channel, called Office Hours, which is really geared at early stage professionals in the startup world and how to get that startup job, how to, you know, what are the common interview questions? How should you research before that? Because, you know, we're only going to have, let's say 200 fellows next year. We're not going to be able to touch everyone who could be impacted by what we've learned. And, you know, we're a nonprofit and and these things advance our mission of mobilizing the next generation of, of entrepreneurs. And so if we can be able to provide resources for folks who we don't have the bandwidth to, you know, do the, the deep dive of the fellowship with, then we should be sharing that out. And, you know, we're not proprietary really about anything. It's, it's all about how can we get more people inspired and motivated and just start. Sure. I, I, I think that's actually really interesting. And I was going to get to that in a second, but I think it's kind of a good time to maybe talk about it. Like, 
you, you just mentioned something like just start and, and it sounds so kind of simple and, and, mm-hmm. and kind of, I, I don't know how to el- let's describe it, but like, what advice do you give to people to actually get them to just start? Mm-hmm. We, we say things like run small tests okay, and figure out who your customer is, make your first thousand dollars. Sure. And even if you end up with a totally different business model later on, if you can get that first thousand from say services and later it's a product. Sure. Fantastic. Um, and we do, we do something called the validation challenge with our fellows where it's a two week sort of virtual experience, but they have milestones every week that they need to hit in order to go from idea to minimum viable product to maybe a little bit of traction. And in that process, maybe what they realize is there's actually not a market for this thing that they want to create. Sure. Um, but it's better to spend two weeks yeah, than two <laughs> years, right? <laughs> exactly. And like fail fast, fail forward, obviously, but like, don't quit your day job, start small, run small tests, and then, you know, grow from there is, is typically what we would say. And just like be a little bit shameless, like use your network. Don't be afraid to reach out to people. Um, you know, don't, don't decide ahead of time what the product's going to be. Let your customers tell you. Sure. Um, and you know, people tend to, to figure it out or, or not. And, and that's valuable, but sometimes just making that first thousand bucks is like, huge. Sure. Well, I think the other thing too, that people um, don't realize that I've kind of experienced and I, and I, I would think you would agree and you can tell me if you don't or, or not, but I think the big thing about if, if you get something that's maybe not even a product yet and you're working towards making your first thousand dollars and then you turn it into a product and you've had, you know, maybe a handful of people contribute to that thousand dollars or more they and you end up building a product and they become your first kind of customers and they're giving you constant feedback and you're iterating they feel like they almost work for your startup even though they don't and they're actually a yeah. customer paying you money and like those are the most loyal people because they will end up telling their friends and their colleagues and you know other people in their network about this product that they feel like they have some ownership in and that seemed to have been really successful and work kind of in my career. Do you, do you agree with that? And you kind of experienced the same thing? Absolutely. I've definitely seen that. I mean, even I, you know, if I throw a couple bucks at a crowdfunding campaign and they keep me posted, I'll be like, oh, how about I introduce you to this person sure. over here to that person? And having like your evangelical set of supporters and customers, I think is critical for any business that's trying to scale. Sure. No, I, I think that's really good advice. And that you brought up something interesting, right? It's like, you never know who's looking at the content you post online, right? Because to your point, yeah. like if you you fund a crowd campaign, obviously you're super connected just with what you guys are doing with Venture for America. So you never know who's kind of looking at this stuff, right? And who could Absolutely. potentially pass you along to somebody that could be your big kind of break in this thing, because you only really need one. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons I almost never say no to a meeting. Interesting. <laughs> or or pass it off to someone but i know I, I find um my mom taught me this actually at an early age she was a nurse okay um, but she even found this in her own career that you you just never know when someone's going to come back into your life and sure. one of our core values is that we try to leave everyone who touches our organization better off than when they they first found us even if it's someone that we're rejecting for a job um, and that's hard to do, right? Sure. But give people a growth experience, make people glad that they interacted with your organization. Because I can't tell you how many times someone who we've rejected for an, for a job or for the fellowship has worked for an organization that we partner with. And you got you have to be friendly to that person. And they have to feel like, you know, I, I wasn't a fit for you, but I still really support what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been a huge learning for me is just keeping those relationships and making people feel good. Even if it takes more time, more personalization, you, there's really no substitute for that. No, that's actually really good advice. I think the other thing that's really interesting now about kind of what we're in is sometimes like not getting the job can be a big motivator to work on the skills or skill that was kind of lacking why they didn't get it right and sometimes people just want to like not necessarily like prove you wrong but just kind of basically prove that 
you know, look, I learned this. And then maybe you will hire them in the future. You never know, right? Yeah. We have this somewhat legendary story within the fellowship of someone who applied three times. Wow. And is now a fellow. Interesting. Uh, you know, so and he took, the, he took the advice that we gave him and worked on the things and he's, he's outstanding. See, there you go. Perfect example, yeah. right? But, but I think people um, for, forget about that sometimes, right? Or like I've, one of my yeah. best friends, like best man in my wedding kind of thing, um, you know, he applied to be a, a firefighter three times and it took him, like he, he always failed on the like actual interview where they, like it was just like a one-on-one -on -one talking interview right? He did everything else fine, but like, he just like, couldn't, wasn't really good at the interview. Right. But he made it through kind of like took it three times and you couldn't, you had to wait an entire year. Right. So it's not always like you try once and you're successful. Right. And I, I think that's really good kind of advice for, for people. Absolutely. So Absolutely. I'm curious about kind of, you, you mentioned you're a not-for-profit, um, how can people kind of get involved with you guys, whether they actually get into the program or not? Like they can, how can they kind of be, be a part of the community? Yeah, there's a variety of ways. So one of the easiest ways is we're always recruiting mentors okay. for, for the program. And so um, can just reach out on the website actually. And there's a, there's a link for that, but we're actively recruiting new mentors who are people who have some experience who you know, want to pay it forward to the next generation. Um, and that's, that's a huge value add. If you are a startup and you're in one of our 15 cities and you think hiring a fellow would be for you, definitely reach out about that as well. All the cities are listed on our website, but we're always looking for the best companies in, in these cities. And, you know, not everyone's always heard of us. So that's, that's a fantastic opportunity. Um, certainly philanthropy is important. So if you happen to represent a large foundation who's investing in entrepreneurship, Come find us. Sure. But um, if you're just, you know, someone who who's a fan, we we have a lot of events. We do our demo day in November. Uh, we have happy hours and other events in our city. So just reach out. Um, we we tend to be pretty accessible. Sure. So uh, I know you kind of quickly kind of mentioned it, but I really want to kind of cover um, all the cities you're in because I you guys are in a ton of cities. Um, and I, I think it makes a lot of sense, but you maybe kind of want to talk through some of the cities that you're in. Yeah. So, so I mean, we're, we're in 15 cities. Okay. We are primarily in the mid Atlantic, the Midwest and the South. We don't have much uh, of a presence that far uh, West okay. Rocky beyond we are in Texas. Okay. So some of our bigger cities, Baltimore is, is a bigger market for us where we've been for a number of years we've had uh, about a hundred fellows go through that program. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's significant. Detroit, we've had closer to 120. I think that's our biggest sort of total ecosystem. Philadelphia will we'll get probably the most fellows this year, uh, looking at maybe as many as 30, wow. which would be a lot. Um, but we're also in Miami, Florida, San Antonio, New Orleans, Birmingham, Kansas City, St. Louis, Cincinnati, Columbus, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, and Providence. I think, I think I hit them all. Maybe, oh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Sure. Um, and all those cities are a little bit different, but they, they really do both, you know, they're hungry for talent and there's great opportunity. And that's sort of the, the beginning and end of it. And we've been lucky that a lot of them are clustered pretty closely together. So you're able to keep community throughout uh, the entire fellowship experience. Sure. So walk me through, is, is the content in each one of the cities that you're in the same or is it a little bit different or how does that kind of work? So the training camp experience is national and there's, a, and many other pieces of our work are national sort of programming, okay. particularly the work that is for our alumni and fellows who are starting businesses, mm -hmm. but much of it is localized as well. We have local mentor networks, right. local events, um, local community directors. And, you know, many times the, the community director has a lot of say in what the fellowship experience is like. And so for, for example, in Birmingham, our local community director started something that she calls a legacy project okay. where the fellows would work in groups to help advise a nonprofit in the area about, 
something, you know, some issue that they're dealing with. And that's a great win because the fellows are, you know, building their strategic muscle skill sets, but also benefiting a local organization. So there's, there's always a high degree of trying to understand the local market and context in order to, you know, not be presumptuous. We don't want to come in. Most, most of our fellows are not from the cities where we work. Got you. We definitely want to appreciate the fact that like, we're new. We want to be additive. We want to understand and learn about this place before we project any opinions. Sure. No, I, I, that makes sense. I, but I also think that some of the stuff you teach, it doesn't really matter where you're located kind of globally. It's, it's kind of the same, right? Like there's some principles that don't really matter that are, have no kind of geographic, you know, uh, whatever the word would be, but you know what I mean? Yep. Um, you know, these cities are surprising, I think, for people who maybe grew up on one of the coasts and haven't had a lot of exposure to the Midwest, sure. uh, for example, or the South. They come with a set of preconceived notions about what these places might be like. And then they get there and they're like, wow, I had no idea. I was just in St. Louis uh, last week. Okay. And one of our fellows who grew up in Southern California and all of his life had really been in California, went to school there. He said one of the things, you know, picking up from the airport, he was like, it's so green here. <laughs> sure, sure. And it's like, yes, of course it's green here. There's forests, there's a huge park that's like world famous. There's all sorts of amazing, vibrant cultural institutions. And it's not just some of the stories that have been played in the media. Um, you know, Ferguson, for example, obviously a flashpoint and something that we are super, super aware of and that the fellows are hugely conscientious, but that's not the only story that St. Louis has. And it's important that we shine a light on these, like really these centers of excellence and the, the good news that is coming out of these cities, because there's a lot more than people realize. And I'm hugely inspired every time I'm in one of these markets. And we're not there because we think they need help. We're there because we think that they're on the rise and the smart money is in these markets. Sure. Well, and I also think too, it's some of these markets are a lot easier to break into because there's not a ton of competition, right? Like there might yeah. be, but you know, like if you're going to go try to build, I don't know, this is maybe a really bad example, but I think it gets the point across. Like if you're trying to build like a new social network in Silicon Valley, like good luck, like you might be successful, but the chances of you making that happen are a lot lower than if you're like trying to solve, I don't know, like you mentioned something with like a power company. Like if you're trying to solve, uh, or was it water? Sorry. I, Power, power, yeah. Okay, so um, I was right. Okay, but if you're trying to do something in the power space, in I think you said Alabama, right? Was it Alabama? Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so, like, if you're trying to solve a problem with you know power in Alabama, and you can get you know the power company on board to try out your product, you could probably leverage that to move into other states. Then instead of saying trying to start the same thing in California where you know nobody, right? Like. Exactly. It, but I think sometimes people don't think like that. They think, oh, I got to move to California to do this startup, even though I'm from, say, Alabama, right? Like, but it just doesn't make any sense. Just like start it where you are locally. Absolutely. And, you know, there's historical strengths. Like, what are the Fortune 500s in that city doing? You know, sure. a place like St. Louis has one of the best ag tech accelerators in the world oh, because that's where Monsanto is. It right. only makes sense sure. that that would be home for that sure. um and i wouldn't want to start an ag tech company in silicon valley no. doesn't make sense yeah no i understand agree but we're coming to the end of the show but i really want to give you the opportunity you've given a ton of advice throughout the show but is there anything else that you kind of see maybe all the time that you just wish you would just say like why do you you know um people kind of think like this all the time like is there something that or a few things that you see all the time that you're kind of would like to say, like, forget about this. It's a myth. It's not true. You know, let's, let's kind of forget about this. Oh, there's probably a million things and I'll think of them after we get off. Sure. One of the things that I always see with young people is that there's just so much anxiety about the future and about okay. platforming themselves into the next opportunity and to getting their resume exactly what they think it should look like in order to be prepared for something. And I, I tend to think you're never going to be prepared. And for me, I've had one opportunity 
lead to the next, lead to the sure. next. And I feel incredibly blessed. And if I'd spent, you know, the first 10 years of my career trying to plot it all out, I wouldn't end up where I am and where I am, I feel like is tremendous. And so I really think this culture of, like I said, syllabus following and hoop jumping has created a generation of people who have a tremendous amount of anxiety um, and a total lack of direction. And I really feel like the folks who can em embrace the ambiguity and who can live in it are the ones that are gonna be successful. And seizing opportunities as they come to you and really being able to go after them is magical. Sure. And if you're if you're too busy playing to your own rule book, uh, things will never work out. I think that's really good advice. I I, I think just to kind of um, echo that is like I I think like I got my first kind of job or two kind of applying for them, um, and then kind of after that it was like I got a job out of school, and then like I knew somebody that moved on that kind of ended up saying, hey, you should come work with me here. Now, like I think in a lot of cases it's just like just get in the field and then yes you should keep your probably resume up to date but like chances are you will probably end up getting your next job and your job after that just because of the people you meet and interact with if you do a good job and make real connections with people right so just worrying about having the perfect resume might get you kind of in the door but you to your point like you just need to just take opportunity and seize it and go for it and i think at the end of the day most people myself included really have no idea kind of what they're doing a lot of the time, right? You just make a decision and go with it, right? And I think there's this illusion that successful people always know what they're doing. I, I think that sometimes they do and sometimes they don't, right? But a lot of people openly won't talk about that, right? At least on like on the record, you could say. Yeah, the, the fake it till you make it line is certainly one that you hear a lot. Um, I do find that there are, you know, men are more willing to do that than women sure. oftentimes. Sure. Uh, but there is an extent that sometimes you look at yourself and you realize, oh, actually I am the expert here and I actually do know what I'm talking sure. about. And owning that is is really, really powerful. And and being willing to admit when you made a mistake. Sure. No, I 100% I agree. But Amy, we're, we're, we're at, out of time. So let's close the show with mentioning where people can get more information about you guys and, and kind of Absolutely. all the stuff we talked about today. We are at ventureforamerica.org, spell it all out, um, and you will find us. Or just give us a quick Google. We should be the, the top uh, results. But please do reach out uh, via, via the website if you are a young person and you think you might want to join a cadre of incredible other young people. Please do apply. The application will open up on August 1st and close, I believe, mid-January. So it's coming up soon. Perfect. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening. To join the free community, buy some merch, sponsor the show, or sign up for the newsletter, please visit the website at buildingthefutureshow.com. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.